0: Let's uh, open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, by the ongoing ministry of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray that we would be open and receptive to his teaching, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us through his words, that our hearts may be repentant and at the same time joyful, that we would indeed be found to be worthy disciples, fit for eternal life. Bless us as we gather here. Bless those who join us online. In Jesus' name, amen. So we left off at 1249, Luke 1249. And of course, what we see is kind of an ongoing, at times thematically meandering, section of our Lord's preaching as he wends his way toward Jerusalem and toward the cross, a major theme in Luke's gospel. He turns toward Jerusalem, and then everything is understood in light of the cross. We find Jesus being sharp-tongued, almost aggressive in many of these cases, and then at times also tender and merciful. Last week, if you recall, we went through this uh, parable that begins somewhere around 35, having to do with the themes of being dressed and ready for the master of the house can return at any time. And then, of course, Peter asks a question in verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Jesus doesn't answer that directly, but then he talks about the three circumstances in which a man can find. Let me see. Okay, there's the blessed. Let's look at verse 30, 43, excuse me, 43. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Okay, there's the first. That's the servant we all want to be but particularly with pastors in view. Verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in two and put him with the unfaithful. So there's the second Kind, and this kind is not even saved. Verse 47 introduces us to the third kind, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. So it's the third kind. Now saved, but saved as one severely beaten. And then 48, the fourth and final, But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Seems to be on account of his ignorance as opposed to his willful disobedience. And then our Lord summarizes his teaching by saying, Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, right without even a break, we enter into 49, which simply begins, the English doesn't quite capture this, it can't, simply begins with the word fire. Fire, I have come to cast upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. And then similarly in 50, it just starts with baptism, baptism. Um, I have a, and then, yeah, it's just impossible to translate. So I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So fire and water. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, here's one of the places where, again, you, you'll sense this as we're Meandering through this part of Luke's gospel, the crowds, or at least sizable portions of the crowds, are somewhat hostile to Jesus. He dishes that right back, sometimes being outright antagonistic, almost aggressive. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So, I mean, has has Christ come to bring peace or not? The angels, when he's born, they say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So, yeah, the peace that Christ comes to bring is a peace for the whole world. But if what? If the world receives him, if it does not, instantly he becomes divisive. And comes not to bring peace, but division, as he says here. Verse 52, for from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother in law against her daughter in law and daughter in law against mother in law. Well, no surprise with the last one. <laughs> so you can see the, the kind of intensity, almost hostility. Uh, in our Lord's preaching and teaching in this section. Now, as he goes on, this is going to become more and more clear that the commitment that he demands and requires of his disciples, whether pastors or laity, doesn't matter here, is absolute. Even unto the dividing of the family, the earthly family, even unto pitting father against son and son against father and so on. His call and his claim is absolute because he is Yahweh in human flesh. He is our maker. He is our redeemer. He is not only the one who made us and redeemed us, but made us and redeemed us for himself. He is our completion, our telos. And if we let anything else get in the way of that, as he's going to outright say in but a little while, we're not worthy of him. So that can, that can strike us as astonishing. That can strike us as painful. That would simply be the law at work, namely putting to death the idols within us, even if those idols are our own father, our own child, our own spouse. So no idol can stand in the way of Christ. He'll get more explicit with this. And maybe a little more nuanced with it as well. But for now, we let that stand. And again, we're just going fairly quickly through these sections because it is a class on the parables, but the parables are kind of interspersed between here. There is a little bit of a double entendre. What do you think he's talking about with this um, fire I have come to cast, baptism I have come to be baptized with? What do you think the fire and the water What, uh, just in terms of biblical lit, (laughs) what themes can you draw out, if any? Well, there's
1: the chaff that's
0: burnt. Yeah. So there's judgment. I came to cast fire on the earth and what that are already kindled. So that's the obvious meaning, I think, is the judgment aspect. Um, When does he cast fire in a gracious way? yeah the baptism of the holy spirit when he pours out the holy spirit on pentecost tongues of fire emerge so there's that hiding in the background now you'll notice that um he is the one casting the fire and then in 50 to contrast it he is the one being baptized hasn't he already been baptized at this point yeah so what baptism is he talking about yeah, the crucifixion. So he calls this crucifixion a baptism. Um, a baptism is at least one half drowning, and the other half resurrection. Every every baptism you see, always oh, an acute. The little babies being baptized, at least one half of that is the babies being drowned. <laughs> the the adult converts being drowned and then resurrected and brought up to new life. Christ here refers to his own cross as a baptism, which then, of course, also means that when we're baptized, we're baptized into his cross. It's the same event. It's the same event. Pastor? Yeah, please. One second, we lost you. Okay. Somebody muted me. Um, I've had pastors uh ref- Uh, allude to the, uh, water that flowed from Christ's side as part of that baptism thing. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly thematically connected. Absolutely right. I mean, now, as I pointed out, there's Christ is the one casting the fire here, but there's also a sense in which his cross is an immolation, is a holocaust, a whole burnt offering in the wrath of God. And so, those themes are, again, kind of tangential in the same way that the water flowing from his side is tangential. It's it's there. It may not be sort of the level one meaning, but it certainly is there as we meditate on these themes. So, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress— until it is accomplished. All right, so again, he's alluding to his uh, passion, and these things kind of, you know he's got this is what I mean by the double entendre. you've got the fire, which is judgment and the baptism which is the cross, transformed into the gracious baptism, whereby we're incorporated in to him and the pouring out of the fire on Pentecost. So you kind of have these law themes and gospel themes woven in, even though the primary sense is judgment and crucifixion. Okay, I don't want to belabor the point, but just want to make a little bit of commentary there. At 54, then we move on. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens when you see the South wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the heaven or the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present time. (laughs) So, you know, in this sense, like you're so earthly minded, um, you can easily see these things, but what I've come to do is even more simple, if only you had eyes to see. That's the sense of the hypocrisy, is what Jesus is doing is even more obvious than the weather cues. All right, 57, you can kind of see the impatient tone. I don't think I'm wrong on that. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is righteous? Which is, I mean, it's just a, it's a strange thing. It's almost as if he's saying, I, why am I even preaching to you? This should already be (laughs) self-evident. You should already know what righteousness is. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And then here, a very typical Jesus thing to preach. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in philacane, which is prison, but can also mean hell, and you get that sense as he wraps up in 59, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So again, he's working with just a really simple, I I, I think from 54 to 59 is a prime example of where you can overthink what Jesus is saying. It's really simple. And in this case, it's like, hey, if you know you're guilty and your accuser is storming off to the judge, and you're like moments away from being thrown into prison for the rest of your life until you pay every last penny. How would you act? And then I think parenthetically, he's saying, So what do you think is going on right now? You're being marched on your way to the eternal prison. Here I am. Would you not like to have a discussion? Would you not like to be set free from this? If you would do this, if you're, if you, like, this would be so self-evident to you in terms of what is earthly. How much more ought this be self-evident to you in terms of what is eternally at stake? All right, I think that's the sense of what he's doing. You see some impatience. You see some directness. You see some simplicity. All right, again, we are, we are wending our way toward chapter 13, verse 6, where's the ne- where the next parable proper emerges. Now, at 13.1, we read there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know the exact nature of this. this would have been an abomination. They were persecuted. It's a scandal. What do they think that Jesus is going to say about this? It's hard to know. Maybe. They think that since he's got all this vim and vigor and kind of aggression, they're going to set before him this bad guy, Pilate, who made martyrs of these
1: Galileans.
0: So maybe they think he's going to respond in wrath against Pilate. Maybe they're challenging him in regard to the justice, like, hey, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Hey, how do you judge this that just happened? It's difficult, if not impossible, to know for certain why they bring this up. But what starts here at 13, uh, 1, and continues as a theme throughout 13, is a wonderful treatment on in fact, to the best of my knowledge, it's our Lord's uh, most succinct and direct treatment of what we would call the question or the problem of suffering. And how, it is, how is God just, and how do we think about these things? And that can be writ small in terms of disaster that befalls you on the, in this earthly life, or it can be writ large in terms of why are some saved and not others. Why do some, you can see how those are effectively the same question. Why do some suffer here on earth and not others? Why are some saved and not others? Those are effectively very similar, if not identical questions. They have at their root, why is God the way he is? And how do we understand that? So we would expect Jesus to give a really profound theological answer, maybe quote Francis Pieper a few times and get some Walther and Luther in there. But take a look what he does. It's really amazing. Verse 2, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you, but unless you
1: repent, you will all likewise perish.
0: So, Jesus rendered judgment. I mean, do these Galileans, were they the worst sinners? Is Pilate worse? Why why did the evil seem to prosper and the good don't? Why do some suffer and not others? And... Jesus' answer is to put both barrels of his verbal shotgun right at the questioner and say, how about you repent (laughs) or you'll likewise perish. It really is a brilliant move. And I think, I mean, to do just a little bit of analysis, our Lord has a way of fetching out things immediately, even more evidence of him being the best theologian. Obviously, he has a way of sniffing out things immediately that it takes the rest of us, mere mortals, a long time to figure out. That is, immediately in the question, he discerns what this is about or where this goes, which is ultimately a judgment upon God. And that's ultimately where such questions go. Why would God allow this? Why would God not immediately punish Pilate and all such other questions? Okay, um, it is important to see here, as elsewhere in these sections, um, that the U is plural. Okay, well, maybe Jesus has had enough with the hard questions. Nope. He poses an even harder one. Verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them?
1: Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the
0: others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So in the first instance... You know, you got this thorny problem of how's Jesus going to
1: respond to this?
0: And one easy answer would be, well, Pilate's wicked. Wicked people do wicked things. You can just put the blame on him if you like. But then what Jesus does is doubles down and makes it even harder because he brings up the Tower of Siloam. Who's at fault there? It's what the insurance companies used to call an act of God. (laughs) They don't anymore, for obvious reasons. Uh, So this is an even thornier problem. A tower falls. Who's responsible for that? But Jesus' message is the same. Unless you, plural, repent, you will all likewise perish. So I think this is a a brilliant, brilliant treatment. I mean, I hardly even want to do like the theology of why some suffer and others don't anymore. I just want to say what Jesus said. (laughs) How about if we all repent? (laughs) That's really the point. And that really is the most pious way. I mean, I don't think Jesus is excluding us from meditating on these kinds of things because the scriptures meditate upon these kinds of things, and they do so quite thoroughly, quite painstakingly. So I don't think Jesus is opposed to that, but I think the point is at the root of all such consideration, meditation, speculation, is the reality that the rubber of all theology hits the road with whether or not you are going to repent. And the bad stuff that happens in the world, whether it's at the hands of a bad guy or whether it's an accident, whatever that means, um, they're all occasions to repent. Okay, so that's the setup for the parable of the barren fig tree. But let me see. I know that's a provocative section. We've covered some fairly provocative stuff. So let me pause and see if you have any questions, any comments, any thoughts. Yeah, sure. It
1: reminds me of the uh, parable of workers that are hired at different times of the day. Steve, the same pay at the end of the day. The upshot is it's none of your business. You know?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of that.
1: Get. So it's, I mean, there they're being rewarded. Here they're being punished. But it seems like the upshot of this is it's none of your business.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, put it in our terms, you're way above your pay grade. <laughs> um, But, I mean, how often, and see, this is, again, we don't even realize it, because to us, they're innocent theological questions. To Jesus, they're immediately and obviously not. (laughs) Now, if we spend enough time thinking about it, we can finally conclude what he concludes instantaneously, and that's that not all theological questions are, in fact, innocent. And particularly those that, if you follow them with integrity, you realize ultimately where it ends is with you on the throne and God in the dock. That's where it ends. Jesus just sniffs it out instantly. Is that good of a theologian? He's kind of where this ends. You repent, and it kind of begins with get off your throne. Oh, I have a question about verse one.
1: Yeah, the
0: Galileans. Is there some kind of a? Like they were criminals, right? Is there some kind of a um, subtext or something? That- no, not that we know of, and the, we don't know that the Galileans in this case were criminals. The, the uh, Sea of Galilee is up north, relatively speaking. Jerusalem is down south, relatively speaking. They're just regular Galileans, regular people. Yeah, G- yeah, exactly. And they were doing their sacrifices. So the, you know, the idea is in the. I, I mean, I think that I don't think this is reading too much into it, but. As they're in the very act of worshiping God, God allows this Gentile dog to come in and cut them down and make an abomination of the sacrifices and spill their innocent blood with the sacrifice that were intended for God. What was God up to? I do think that that's at least part of the pretext. I don't think I'm, we're overreading it when we, you know, think that that's part of what's going on. So Jesus, a lot of Jesus' ministry is on and around um, the Sea of Galilee and the Galilean. Remember, his disciples are Galileans. They get called out for that. But he's on his way to Jerusalem. So that's probably just in terms of like why Luke makes a point of those things. It's the tower on Siloam in Jerusalem. You know, it's like you draw those things together because it's where Jesus was and where he's going. Yeah, good thoughts, good questions. Yes, sir.
1: Going
0: back to your point about repentance, that, very good very response saying why God does and I said you still can't.
1: But as a believer, let's say that somebody didn't mm-hmm. offer the assurance that they are that and of your salvation.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I th- yeah, I think, I mean, I th- so I think, like, what would, if I could take a stab at it, what would our Lord's goal be for his disciples, when these wicked things happen, that you simply humble yourself, you don't call God into judgment. Um, you, don't, you don't say, why did he allow this, or what's he going to do about this, or how is this right, or I'm not sure I'm in, you know. And that, you know. But you here repentance would mean to humble yourself, to realize your own mortality, to realize that God is God and he can do whatever he wants, but ultimately to realize that if some contemporary pilot comes and spills your blood, you're safe in the one who has the power to raise you from the dead. And similarly with the Tower of Siloam or anything else, you know, the idea would be, um, okay, so what happens when some great tragedy happens and you can't point the finger at anybody? It's a quote-unquote act of God. Yeah, you should humble yourself rather than judge him. You should tremble before him. You know, It's that echo of the catechism. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We like the love and trust bit, the fear, not so much, but the fear is essential. (laughs) We should fear and love God, then echoes throughout all the rest of the commandments, because that fear is an essential aspect. I mean, I think not only on account of our creatureliness, but also and especially on account of our sinfulness. And then the maturity of this repentance is when you realize, all right, well, tower falls on me or... A tornado gets me or earthquake opens up under my feet and I go in. I still belong to the Lord. I'm not going to call him into judgment. I'm his. I'm his creature. He can take me whenever he wants. And he's promised to raise me from the dead. God be praised for that. That's a God worth serving. It's a God worth humbling yourself under. And it's a God that's not worth questioning. In terms of what he chooses to do, you know, you get every once in a while when with the why some and not others, which is a really it's just like a next door question. Um, Why some and not others die? Why some and not others saved? It's effectively the same question. You see what I'm saying? Well, what what about the the noble African Bushman who never hears the gospel? What's God going to do about that? None of my business or your business either. Repent or you're going to find out what happens (laughs) in the worst case scenario. And that would be a Jesus answer to that question. If Jesus, I guarantee it, if you were to ask Jesus, hey, what about the noble African bushman? I mean, he's not going to sit there and be like, well, first of all, there's no such thing as a noble African bushman. I mean, all that's true, but he's not going to bother. He's just going to cut right to the chase. Who do you think you are to sit on, to put yourself on the throne of God in heaven? And judge him. Like, what are you going to do with that information? We'll get to that in a minute. Toward the end of 13, it's like, what are you going to do with that information, sir? You're going to sit in judgment over God. The particular question there, in case we don't get there, is, are there many who are going to be saved or few? What, sir, are you going to do with that information? There's only one thing to do with that information. Judge God. I don't know if it were me, I'd have a few more. Maybe more saved than damned. Maybe all of them saved. Maybe all of them damned, Yeah you know, What are you going to do with that information? There is no right answer. That's why Jesus doesn't give the right, give any answer. He simply says, "Hey, how about this? Imagine if when that day comes, the door's shut and you're outside. <laughs> you are. Want- I want to do theological speculation. Speculate on that. How does that feel, right? The point being that all of our theology can also become the very thing that we interpose between ourselves and God. So that we're so busy doing theology, we've missed theology, which is humbling ourselves before the Lord and receiving his salvation. And then wherever the chips fall, of what business of it is mine if he saves one person? Of what business of it is mine if he saves not a single person from this entire generation? Who am I to, what am I going to do, wave my bony little fist? How dare you, God? I think of better things to do with my time. Um, And how ridiculously out of place for me, a worm and not a man, to shake my little wormy fist at the Almighty. He can do whatever he wants. So I think that yeah, as we as we kind of meditate on what does it mean to repent, I think as we this is just me taking a stab at like the full maturity of what it means to be a disciple is you you know it's it's ultimately that prayer which our Lord Himself prays when He's being put to death by Pilate when the He's hanging, not from the tower, but from the cross, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Okay, anything else before we uh, go on to the parable of the barren fig tree? Okay, so... Think about the only thing you need to know ahead of time is that the fig tree often represents God's people, often represents Israel. You just want that rattling around in the back of your mind. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree. Planted in his vineyard. Now we know the vineyard, that's Isaiah 5 and lots of Old Testament meditations on that, New Testament as well. So we're back in the vineyard. We know something about that. Um, The Lord plants his vineyard. He makes it perfect. (laughs) Interestingly, he builds a tower there. All right, and he's got a fig tree there. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, singular, the vine worker, literally, look. Look. For three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. What does that tell us right off the bat about this guy? He waited three years. I had a tomato plant once. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how I loved my tomato plant. I fertilized, and I tended, and I researched, and I... And the tomato plant grew no tomatoes. Did I wait three years? <laughs> oh, heck no. <laughs> In great wrath and bitterness, I plucked it out. All right. So this guy's waited three years and he's given the perfect, I mean, he's spared no expense if you know anything about this vineyard owner and his vineyard. So what's up? He says, cut it down. And he's, well, well within his right. And you can see the justification. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Like, why not actually put it in a plant that's going to grow something? This is a worthless tree. I've already been merciful threefold over it. Give it. It's only good stewardship to give it to something else. All right, give the ground to something else. Verse 8, and he answered him. Now, this is the uh, ample ergos, the vine worker, vine dresser. Who answers him? It's just the two of them. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone, which is fine, but anemic. The word is aphes, and "afes" can mean let it alone, loose it, um, release it. But aphes can also mean what it means in the Lord's Prayer, kai afes ta afili marta hamon, and forgive us our trespasses. So it is possible and well within your right, even if a little strange, to hear him say, Sir, forgive it this year also. Sir, forgive it this year also. Until are the ladies trying to meet in here tonight? Yeah. Trying to invade us. Is there L W M L tonight?
1: It's
0: a special meeting. Oh, okay. All right. Is it significant that it's a fig tree in the middle of a vineyard? I don't know. I don't know. It could be, but I, I think you do get the sense that the vineyard sometimes is broader than just grapes. Do you know you know anything? Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't I tend to think not, but if, if anybody finds out otherwise, I'd be I'd love to know. Okay, so, sir, forgive it this year also until, and I think this is key because, again, um, you know, as contemporary Lutherans, we have a way of going overboard here with some, with some things. Like, like, he's just going to allow the fruitless tree to remain there into perpetuity as long as this guy just keeps coming and saying, hey, forgive it, forgive it, forgive it. That's not what's going on. Forgive it or let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Now, this is some tender compassion. I mean, he's saying, I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to pay special attention to this fig tree. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to put manure on it. Verse 9, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So this isn't a parable where it's just like, hey, forgive this fruitless tree into perpetuity. (laughs) Forgive it until I go to work on it. And if I go to work on it and it's fruitful, well and good. If I go to work on it and it still is not fruitful, cut it down. I think you see a super abundance here in the mercy. I mean, of course, who's the vineyard owner, would you say? Father. Who's the vine dresser? Son. Who's uh, the fig tree? Well, in a sense, his people. If you're looking for a time in which they get cut down because they refuse to be fruitful, you'd go to 70 A.D., And the Romans cutting them down and destroying the temple and slaughtering many, many of of the people who rejected Christ. Okay, and then this can take on an individual flair, too. I mean, I I do think it's corporate, plural, would be the best way to understand it. But why not reflect on it individually? That if we've been fruitless, the mercy of God is in his patient, long-suffering. And the ministry of Jesus is to intercede. Don't cut it down. Not yet. Let me do what I can. Now, if it rejects me and rejects my work, well, then chip's got to fall where chip's got to fall. Cut it down. But let me go to work on it that I can make it fruitful. And there is some kind of digging around at the roots, which if you're a tree doesn't sound terribly comfortable. And piling on manure, which doesn't sound great either, but we all know that that's sometimes how our Lord works. There's the painful digging around the roots. There's the heaping on of, well, the manure in our lives. (laughs) And ultimately, God willing, a fruitfulness that emerges from that and from the labors of the vine dresser.
1: Okay, so there's mercy,
0: superabundant mercy, astounding mercy, corporately understood, individually understood, but there also is a line drawn in the sand that ultimately, if the tree continues to be fruitless, refuses to be fruitful,
1: then it's going to end up cut down.
0: Okay, I think that's all I wanted to say about that. Any thoughts you you have? Any questions? Any uh, commentary or anything you saw? Yeah, Barry. In John uh, chapter 1, it talks about Nathaniel being under the fig tree and Jesus seeing him. Is there a connection here? What's what's he under the fig tree uh, doing? Yeah, what does he say, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit? So you've got that connection between the Israel, the guileless Israelite under the fruitful fig tree. You've got a lot of Old Testament motif going on there. Probably, I mean, well, there's a lot of speculation because we don't know exactly what. We just know the outcome is that the Lord says, I saw you under the fig tree, and that is convincing enough that to Nathaniel that, um, he recognizes that he is the Messiah. So probably it's not something like, you know, it's probably not something easily explainable or naturally explainable. Like, Oh, you saw me up there without binoculars. Okay. I guess I'll believe you're the Messiah. Probably not. I've seen this um, depicted in a movie where, uh, Nathaniel, see now, this is artistic license. So Nathaniel has this vision of God, of the Messiah, and he can't, he doesn't recognize any features, but he has this vision, this experience. And then when Jesus says, I saw you, that's the light bulb going on. Okay, <laughs> that's this is God. Another, poss- another possibility, I know that's artistic license, all this is speculative, but another possibility that emerges out of the Old Testament is the recognition of the sound of the voice. That when he speaks and says directly to him, I saw you, that Nathaniel recognizes that voice, again, from some other uh, immediate experience with the Lord, whom he did not know to be the Lord, but now it is revealed. That's a possibility. I don't know. That has its it has its uh, weaknesses too, but that is something you see in the Old Testament that um, they will recognize the voice of of the one speaking to them. The, yeah, Pastor Rodi. Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, I. Yeah, I... This uh, sounds to me very similar to when Abraham asked about, uh, you know, when God was going to destroy Sodom, he said, would you do that for the sake of 50, then 40, then 30? And that it shows consistent characteristic of God to be hold back judgment to allow, you know, anyway, that's what I was thought of. When I heard. That's a great,
0: It's a great point, and it's very apropos. Uh, all the mediators of the Old Testament, Abraham, in the example you brought up, among them are just like this vine dresser who mediates and spares that which should not be spared and does so for good purposes. So I think you're, I think you're right on with that. And of course, all of it points and directs toward Christ himself.
1: Yep, thank you for that. Well, another thing that makes me think of the parable of the unforgiving servant who he's, he's forgiven, um, and then he doesn't bear the fruit of forgiving his fellow servant, sure. and so his forgiveness is revoked.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's be a great example. Be a great, yeah, I think that that's right on. It's exactly right. You know, and just to add to the fig tree, of course, um, like right at Holy Week, I can't recall if it's, I think it's inside of Holy Week. Almost certain he finds the fruitless fig tree, but it's not even the season. You remember this? Then he curses it, and the next day they come by and it's all withered and supernaturally withered and dead. So, you, and you know, of course, like the reason recoils at like, well, <laughs> why didn't he expect it to be fruitful when it's out of season? But it's all a visual parable of fruitless Israel that's finally run out of time. And they're about to put him to death. I mean, the vine dresser. <laughs> so they're about to be put to death definitively themselves. That's the, that's the judgment. Again, if you're looking for the concrete history of that, that's roughly 40 years later with the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, so you've got fig trees uh, popping up here and there almost always. Uh, reflecting the reality of Israel. Okay, our next parable, let's see, that's 13.6. Yeah, our next parable is kind of right around the corner here. Which time do we have? Let's just go quick. So we'll hit um, 1310, we'll just pick up and try to speed along here till we hit the next one, because it's all interspersed and it's all intertwined. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had, uh, the ESV renders it a disabling spirit, which is fine, a pneuma Asthenias asthenias is like weakness, sickness, disabilities, fine. And later on, Jesus relates this to the work of Satan. So we do know it's a, uh, you know, what would otherwise be called an unclean spirit. So this woman had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself which in context just has these wonderful resonances with the tree that can't bear fruit. Uh, What was the
1: other? Oh, the people who can't judge for themselves. This woman can't
0: stand up. Cannot fully straighten herself. Then 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over to himself and said to her, woman, you are freed from your, and it's the exact same word for um, the asthenius. So uh, the disabling spirit, you are freed from your disability. You're freed from your weakness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. But you just can't help but reflect on the vine dresser, laying his hands at the roots of the tree. And now he lays his hands on this bent over woman and she's made fruitful. She's made upright. She was made straight. There's some later reflections on this that are possible with Luke writing his gospel, you know, several decades after the fact, Um, the language for straight Anorth, anorthothe so ortho, ortho like ortha, and then you would go, well, where's the dox? Well, she's made straight, and she edidoxen God, so gives glory, glorified God, so she is orthodox unto God, giving right glory, so possible later reflections there that uh, Luke may be Alluding to 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, <laughs> that's like the congregational president, was indignant because Jesus had dared to heal on the Sabbath. I love what he says. <laughs> that's great. <It's> so practical. <laughs> it's just, I sympathize with this poor guy. We all think this way. So he's indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. So he says to the people, I love this there are six days. In which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. (laughs) That's great. I mean, can't you see him like the next day? Like, you know, Sunday morning, which would be our Monday morning. He's like after the secretary. Now put this in the newsletter. (laughs) There are six days to come and be healed. Not this one. (laughs) Not on the Sabbath day. All right. Well, the Lord thinks this is ridiculous and rightfully so. Verse 15, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now notice he says it plural. So obviously this guy isn't standing alone in his attitude. You hypocrites, plural. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And the answer is, of course. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Look, you on a Sabbath day, loose your ox or your donkey. Can I not loose this woman from Satan? And of course, the answer is yes. I mean, they they can't do anything but be embarrassed, be put to shame. Interesting that the ox and the donkey arise. The ox and the donkey come from Isaiah, and they show up in the kresh, the nativity kresh. You ever wonder why the ox and the donkey are there? Because Isaiah says the ox and, and the ass know their master, know their lord, know their maker, but my people do not. And that's exactly what's going on here, isn't it? Yeah. So they don't know who is in their midst. And you've got this echoing of the ox and the donkey in the background. All right, well, verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Okay, in 18 and 20, we have the two parables that we've covered before. But just quickly... He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches, again, um, tabernacled in its branches. Technical language. And um, yeah, the point, again, of the small made large, and that which appears to not be able to bear much fruit at all, bearing abundant fruit. And then likewise in 20, again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. It's about all you can handle at one time until it was all leaven. So you think of the dough being all flat and then raising way up. So small to large, unfruitful to fruitful, those are the themes. we meditated on those before. Okay, now we're at the narrow door, which is this section. Do we have time for it? Yeah, we got time for it. Good. All right, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. There's Luke's uh, line where he is always directing us toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem and toward the cross. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? There's the question. What are you going to do with that information, sir? (laughs) Nothing good. So he kind of answers it, but not really. And he said to them, and I love this, strive to enter through the narrow door. Um, the root word is where we get the word agony or agonize, agonize, strive, struggle mightily to enter through the narrow door. And I love this active language on the part of Jesus. You know, you, you know this innately that passivity is effeminate. Activity is masculine. There's a very important way in which this is true, where um, Christ is the masculine giver, to his bride, the church, who is the receiver, the giving and the receiving, the activity and the passivity. But it is also true that those two are made one flesh, and we are one body with Christ. And there is indeed time and place for disciples to be extremely active and extremely vigorous. And the Lord, we've already seen this, ask, seek, knock. (laughs) Um, Now, Agonize or strive. And this is masculine. And I I do think that one of the unintended consequences of our emphasis on the monergism of, of the gospel and grace and justification has come at the expense of the masculinity and the call to struggle with all your might and main, which is a very masculine thing to do, but to what end? To make yourself rich, give yourself a big, huge legacy on earth, get a bunch of buildings named after you. No, use your masculine energy to this end that you enter through the narrow door. Treat that like the end all be all, like the sumum bonum, the, the greatest good and greatest goal of your life what is your greatest accomplishment it's to stuff yourself through that narrow door <laughs> and to agonize and do whatever it takes to get it done there's a masculinity and a so revelation picks up on this with the language of victor uh, victory and and um, to the one who overcomes, which just is kind of anemic. We can't help it in English, but it's the, the root there is nika. Nika'ao is the language. It's where we, uh, Nike, just do it, right? And think of the masculine energy behind just do it. That's to the one who overcomes, to the one who just does it, to the one who conquers, and there's so much room in the scriptures for that. I do really think we've lost a bunch of that, which is why, you know, masculinity is suffering in the church. A lot of women, a lot of women doing the doing, a lot of guys sitting passively back. Uh, we want to singly and collectively agonize, strive to enter through the narrow door. And this is plural language, by the way. So it's a present imperative. The Lord's demanding that you, plural do something, strive and agonize, to enter through that narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, the root of that word, be able, this is uh, iskususan. So, um, the iskaros is the mighty man from our gospel lesson on uh, Sunday, And the mightier man, Christ, is the one who overcomes him and strips. So those two words, though different in Greek, share the same root. And so again, you see here this idea, many are going to seek, and they're not going to be strong enough to get in through that narrow door. Well, what's going to impede them? God? No. The devil, yes, and all his host, yes. The world and all of its corruption, yes, and even your own flesh, yes. Mightier enemies than you can imagine, and some will not be strong enough, some will not be able to overcome these and get through that narrow door.
1: So that's about the closest
0: Jesus comes to answering his question, which isn't exactly the kind of answer he's looking for. Just many will seek to enter and not be able to. You can think of many are called, few are chosen. That would be a parallel verse that sheds a little more light. But our Lord's already motoring along. He's got a different goal in mind, as I mentioned earlier. Verse 25, when once the master of the house, the oikodespotes, this would be Christ himself, has risen and shut the door, and you, plural, begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. In other words, you're a stranger, you're an alien, I have no idea who you are. If you think I'm opening the door up, you're nuts. So again, what has our Lord done effectively? Here, are there many or few? I can tell you this, strive and agonize with all your might to get in the narrow door, for many aren't going to be able to make it. Now imagine this, you're outside and the door's shut. How are you going to feel? That kind of puts all the theoretical theology out to pasture, doesn't it? And gets right back to the brass tacks of imagine yourselves outside. Oh, you don't like that imagination? Then don't ask theoretical questions. Get down to the business of repenting, striving, agonizing to get into that narrow door of the kingdom. All right? I think that's what Jesus is up to. I know we're real short on time. Let me just kind of finish the thought we'll pick up here next week and do a thorough job with this piece. So again, 25, when once the despotes, the master of the house, has risen and shut the door, and you all, plural, begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. You can see that in the English. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. Now think about this at the second layer again of Luke's gospel decades later. Hey, we had holy communion with you. As there's a warning here not to abuse the sacraments, much like Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. He does the same thing. Don't presume. The sacraments are there for your comfort and consolation, but you can abuse them and presume upon them also. We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. You're all strangers. You're all alienated. Depart from me, which is where we ultimately get the word to apostatize, apostasy, apostate from me. So there's a little bit of wordplay going on there. Depart from me, all you workers of adikias, unrighteousness there, evil. In that place where, outside, on that day when the door is finally shut, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth which is Jesus' typical way of expressing hell or eternal judgment, condemnation. there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you, plural, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all your heroes, again, he's speaking predominantly to the Jewish people here, but all your heroes and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Again, you can see what he's doing to the Theoretical, theological question here. Imagine this. And he's provoking them. I mean, it's it's his rhetorical intent to provoke them to godly jealousy. Verse 29, and people will come from east and west, from north and south. Now, this is indicative of the Gentiles coming in, which again is provoking them to jealousy. That's the intent. So, all these people come from east and west, and from north and south, and recline at table the feasting in the kingdom of God. And, be, and then you have this, and behold, some who are last to a Jew, that's going to be the Gentiles. There are some who are last who will be first and some who are first, the Jew in his own mind is first, who will be last. All right, so the question of why do, why, why do these guys suffer and how many people get in and you see our Lord's treatment, He just directs it all point blank at us and says, hey, repent on the one hand or strive on the other hand. Um, Much more can be said, but I've already held you three or four minutes over. So we'll close with the Lord's Prayer. We'll revisit this. I'll hang out if you have any questions or comments that are imminent. Otherwise, we'll just revisit this next week and then go off and run through the rest of this section. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.